I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Hi, and welcome back to Humanity in War. I am very excited to report that I am sitting here in person and not across from a screen, but in real life in the same room with our guest today. And it's not just any guest, but it's our own dear Director of International Law and Policy, Helen Durham. Thanks for joining us today, Helen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And indeed, it is a real treat to see, uh, see you in real life, as they say. Yes, yes have this it's real life experience. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so grateful for your time today because I'm aware of how crucial and precious this resource is for you at the moment. You're in your final stretch of an eight-year mandate as Director of International Law and Policy. Can I just ask, how are you feeling right now in the middle of this whirlwind? Oh, this is a wonderful entry point. Um, right now, it hasn't really hit me, to be honest. Uh, and this is a this opportunity gave me a time to actually sit and chat to you about things. Um, there is so much work to do. There is so many things that I, even after eight years, I would have loved to finish off. So right now, I feel like I'm on a very short sprint. And uh, perhaps ask me in a couple of weeks. Right now, it's get ahead, keep moving. So I'm grateful for your time. And I'm also really grateful for the timing, because you must be in a period, as you say, even within the sprint, you must be really taking stock and having a deep reflection over not just the last eight years as Director of International Law and Policy, but the last 20 years as well of your career in the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. So I think it's just an excellent time to be able to absorb some of this thinking that you must be going through. So to start off, can you just give us some broad strokes? You know, you've built this incredible department of which I'm very proud and honored to be part of, this International Law and Policy Department. What are some of the main takeaways of these last eight years of the people that you've been working with and the priorities that you've set? Oh, it's a great big meta question to yes. start with. Yes. I think my foundational feeling, and it's both intellectual and also almost emotional, is that it is always about the people. And it sounds quite trite to say that. It's about the people we aim to serve and it's about the people we work with. I have had the incredible honour of being a leader in this department and every step that I've taken has been with people, about people and I, I just can't stress that more strongly enough. I think when we work in the humanitarian sector, we often don't take the breath to realise it's not easy or convenient to try and change the world. These are not easy things we aim to do in the movement. And you're right, I, I went to my first legal advisors meeting back in 1997. Uh, so I've been around a long time in this space in different, in different formats. So in this space that it's not easy or convenient, we're pushing against impossible odds. Every day we try to do something possible. We have to find a connection with those we work with. Um, but I think the second thing beyond the people is bringing to bear with our mandate and our mission of reducing suffering in armed conflict and particularly for our department through the profiling, the making relevant IHL, humanitarian diplomacy, our work with the armed forces delegates, strengthening our research. It's been about finding multiple entry points to change the behaviour of those who are in a position of power over people who often are not just vulnerable, have their own answers as well, but often in difficult situations. So it's about people. Um, that's one of my main reflections. It's secondly about using all our strengths and all our skills in a very multidisciplined way to ensure that we live up to this incredible mandate we've been given by states and I would say by the international community to provide relief, 
support protection and disseminate international humanitarian law. Thank you so much for really setting the tone of this conversation. I think that it really reflects your time as director as well. And I've so enjoyed doing the research and preparation for our discussion today, including by asking a lot of the people that you are working with over the last eight years what they wanted to be addressed during this time. And one thing that really struck me was a very consistent reaction in their faces. They always brightened up when I said, I'm going to have a discussion with Helen Durham. They said, oh, excellent. Can you please ask her about X, Y, or Z? And this was a, a gift and a curse, a gift because I think it's a, a great reflection on how you've run the department uh, and this people-centered approach is reflected in those facial expressions, but also a bit of a curse because I came away with such a long laun laundry list <laughs> of issues that it's really not possible in one conversation to, to address them all. So I did uh, whittle it down somewhat to, to some that I know and, and we as your team know are very near and dear to your heart and in our hearts in the department as well. Uh, so I wanted to start with uh, a crux issue, which is the national implementation of international humanitarian law, or really just a broader efforts that we've, uh, that we've put forward on how to ensure respect for and the development of that body of law. So can you tell us a little bit, over the last eight years specifically, what, in your opinion, have been some of the biggest achievements in this field and also some of the challenges that you've seen? Ah, yes. No, you're right. It is both a blessing and a curse. But a blessing because, as you said, it's, it's really been a joy for me and I've, I've seen people flourish. It's also exhausting too, if I can be honest as a leader, because I really want to have an open door policy, but you've got to walk the talk. So I think there's there's a whole lot of balances there, but I'm, I'm very delighted to, to have this moment to reflect with you. National implementation of IHL, yes, because I started my role with the ICRC many years ago as a consult or advisory service delegate, I really saw and understood the depth I would say profound importance and depth of setting the scene, setting foundational legal issues such as ratification of treaties, which we've done many over the last few years, such as the implementation, the behind-the-scenes work that often isn't as sort of as, as public. It's hard to put a beautiful picture of the ratification of a treaty compared to some of the other work the ICRC does. But I always come back to a very basic thing. You cannot do a fire drill in the middle of a fire. By the time the bombs start falling and the conduct of hostility starts, we can still influence, of course, and we do extraordinary demarches. And I think our, our operational lawyers and our FAS colleagues and others that work in this immediate space do extraordinary roles. But I think it has to be complemented with this long-term aim. And I look at, say, even the resolution at the last international conference, bringing IHL home, which is a really extraordinary um, mapping out of the range of things from using video and virtual reality in the way that we train from making sure we have strong national natural committees it's it's you know I think that was a really strong push forward uh, I see that also reflected in some of the work in New York where we see Security Council resolutions dealing with essential services dealing with counterterrorism measures so this behind the scenes not as not as easily put on a sort of the website is I think critically important I've really seen this area um, grow and I would say also have a, a good understanding within the institution that is critical. I think one of the challenges is when I first came on board, we were uh, aiming to do a range of important things such as create a more formalised structure around a, a compliance mechanism. Uh, we were trying to also do some further work around sort of formalising soft norms on detention, critical humanitarian problems. And that was um, a big diplomatic lift. We didn't get where we wanted to go to. Uh, 
which is why we needed to almost shift back from trying to do everything at the global level to bringing IHL back home. So we've had to always constantly move between the international politics and the need for strong technical domestic implementation. Um, what I what I did learn from that, if I may say so, is both uh, I would say a challenge, but also it was something that we today can look and see uh, without the infrastructure, but in an ad hoc way, there's almost 30 national societies, for example, that are doing their own um, voluntary reporting, which was one of the elements of that. We'll, we will have in the future thematic discussions. So some of the aims from a formal structure, we've been able to happen organically. And what I did know in that space is I, I, I was able to look back with colleagues here too, many of the great advances forward in uh, international humanitarian law and changing behaviour have taken up to 30 years. This is an area of law where we need to be able to be immediate, but we also have to have a slower speed. So I would see in this implementation space, the resolution at the International Conference drove us forward. Across the globe, I've seen extraordinary ways our colleagues have found traction between a global discourse and the local. Uh, recently, I had the joy of uh, writing a forward for beautiful work that our colleagues in Africa have done, taking African myths and stories and correlating them with the existing norms. Works, work, similar work I did years ago in the Pacific. So I think this sense of moving between global, regional and local in the implementation uh, has been a, a, great, a great privilege to witness. Thank you so much. And it's so important that you mention, you know, we really are playing the long game in many ways. And what we're doing is laying the foundation. And uh, against that backdrop, there are many specific issues. You know, I'm the editor of the Humanitarian Law and Policy blog, so I'm dealing with all of the pillars of our institutional priorities as well as the wildflowers. I know that you and I will be speaking uh, in a couple of weeks with Fianula Ni Aulain on gender and international humanitarian law. So, and I know that we'll, we'll dig into that in depth uh, at that point. But today, let's talk about one that's um, make or break for humanity, uh, nuclear weapons. The Treaty for Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was a major milestone that was adopted in January of last year and something that you and your team have worked tirelessly to achieve. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the behind the scenes nice. of this negotiation and also what it means now that it's entered into force? Well, it's good timing because we have coming up soon the first meeting of state parties, which is an extraordinary achievement uh, in and of itself. Yes, this one's been certainly for myself, not only in my role as director, but before that when I was with Australian Red Cross, something I've worked on for over a decade. Now, across the globe, there are so many people in fact, I would say millions of people that have worked for very many years. So we are a small cog in a big wheel. But I think the Red Cross, particularly the ICRC, when we raise our voice, it has a persuasive element. So it's been extraordinary to be in this role as this treaty was developed and then entered into force and now the first state party meeting. I think the thing that I learnt most about the process and behind the scenes for this treaty was the need to shift the narrative. What we do as humanitarians all the time is we deal with big problems. And sometimes these problems are almost overwhelming. People look at them and they think, oh, it's just too big. I mean, trying to imagine a world when you know nuclear weapons are, are utilised, and let's be really real, this, they call small nuclear weapons are the ones that are size of the bomb of Hiroshima. So when we're talking about nuclear weapons today, we're talking something massive. People often just shut down and they, they ignore it. But one of the things that the I think the ICRC did with the rest of the movement, as well as other organisations, is shift the narrative in the last, I would say, five to 
10 years, away from nuclear weapons being exclusively the domain of military doctrine and into the space where there was a discussion around the humanitarian consequences. Mm. So it became everyone's business. Whether you possess them or not, it's everyone's business because it's transversal, very similar to the pandemic. I mean, these are humanitarian issues that we will stand or fall on with global responses, not just with those who have them. So over a number of um, meetings in different countries, from Mexico to Oslo to Vienna, the narrative was shifted. And, and certainly I feel in the ICRC we played a strong role in being able to clearly, with a clear, bright, sober response, say we cannot respond if these weapons are used so that which we cannot respond to we must prevent and i think some of this pushed as well as the uh, the doctrine our own doctrine that it's very doubtful you could ever use these weapons in accordance with ihl so i think it's it's been an extraordinary journey um the icrc played a great role the only reason why i smile about it is because when i was working for australian red cross and my children were very young we used to do a friday teleconference and because of the timing in australia you just always have to be friday night so i remember sort of constantly trying to quickly read rapunzel to my daughter to get onto the the teleconference oh, wow. with the ICRC and sort of balance that and when my kids write about what does their mum do the first thing they often say is she tries to stop nuclear weapons which I'm sure confuses <laughs> the teachers um, but <laughs> so I think it's been a long journey and the ICRC from the start when we witnessed back when they were first used the the practical implications now that's entered into force it's going to take a long time once again I constantly say to be in this area of wanting to push humanity in the right direction you have to have a lot of patience uh, of of course, there's cynicism. Yes, what's you know, states who possess them as if they're going to care. But you do see over a period of time the stigmatization of these weapons. The fact that companies that invest in elements that produce these weapons will be seen as it's shameful. We really have to just shift the cursor to get to a point, which we will have at some point. Hopefully, my great grandchildren or somewhere along the line. But if we don't start this journey now, we're not going to get there. So I think it's it was a, a obviously strong legal political, diplomatic, but also changing the narrative. So this terrible problem, people could feel there was some sort of solution. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, especially on the point of, of cynicism. It's such an easy, lazy it's an easy way, way. Uh, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and recently I was at an event and you're sort of actually appearing before some parliamentarians and this is like, isn't there a naivety? And I, I say, no, there is a deep naivety in believing that the status quo is going to let us survive. So let's flip this idea about naivety. I, I think, and, and once again, this is sort of a, another issue I've really thought carefully about in my eight years in this role. Um, sometimes people almost correlate optimism with a lack of intellectual rigour. I think you can be cautiously optimistic. If you cannot believe as humanitarians that you can ever make a change, then, then stay home or do something else. Absolutely. At the same time, you know, you cannot do our role. I mean, we've all been, I mean, I've been in the field many times. I was a delegate. You go into the darkest places. You look at the darkness of, hu of the human heart. So it's not a, a naivety to be um, belief we can make a shift and a change. I think there's a great strength in that. And I think sometimes the naivety is that you can't do anything, you might as well give up. So I, I, I sort of think on the on, on the weapons issues, on changing behaviour, on a range of things, we cannot um, but look at the status quo and say, that's not good enough. So where are we going to take it? Baby steps sometimes. Uh, sometimes we do big leaps. But I think if we don't have that attitude, um, then, you know, cynicism to me is, is very cheap.
it's um, it's good to be critical. It's good mm. to question. It's good to say, hey, you know, is this really what we need to be doing? Let's not pat ourselves on the back. I think we have to be humble. But I think the depth of cynicism and believing that it's not going to change, uh, really, I don't think you have the energy to do the jobs that we do. Absolutely. And I'm all for that, really flipping the script and using logic against bad behavior. Yes. <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> um, so let's zoom back out and go to another sort of ar- overarching issue and another one that is uh, requires immense proactive energy. Uh, so some of our colleagues have noted that they've noticed an increasing difficulty for humanitarian agencies to say anything context specific, because of course, we're linked to operations and we have to maintain neutrality. And I can, of course, attest to this observation as the blog editor as well. Mm, of course. But some are saying that humanitarian agencies are, are perhaps over-interpreting what it means to be neutral and confidential, and that states could really sense this weakness and push even harder in that direction. What are your thoughts on this? Ah, uh, this is a good one. Uh, I think I, I, you, I have often felt that the role of particularly, say, the ICRC, and our president once expressed it very well, is to be respectfully irritating. Mm. Um, and that's, that's an important balance. If you're too respected, it means you're not doing your job. But if you're too irritating, of course, they don't want to hear from you. Uh, And I I do agree. I think in this current environment, it's one of the big concerns I have going forward, which I'm sure my successor and the brilliant new directorate will will lean into and look at, is this growing um, sense that you, the space for neutral, impartial humanitarian action, of speaking to all sides in a party, of finding solutions and sitting with uncomfortable, uncomfortable utterances, you know, not being able to immediately delete them on your own your um, Twitter or WhatsApp or whatever, I think that is, is, is a big challenge. At the same time, as you mentioned, I, um, certainly my experience is many what we might call assertive states often really do respect us when we hold our ground. So I think this idea that every time we hold our ground, we're sort of being too irritating. I think there is a respect, it's certainly my experience, in having very, at times, forceful discussions with very senior members of government and authorities behind the scenes in our bilateral way is there can be a a respect if you hold your ground. So I think that's the first thing. So we have to be a little bit careful not to think that we have to bend the knee as a humanitarians every time there's an uncomfortableness. I think there is in this, as I said before, in this polarised world where this sort of sense you're either with us or against us, there's no nuance, uh, a fear that we could have to do that. So yes, I think um, in general, we need to continue to hold our line. We are a dual mandated institution. We have both an important mandate in our assistance and protection work, but also in guardians of international humanitarian law and in our space of humanitarian diplomacy and policy, raising up, surfacing up humanitarian issues and, uh, some of my colleagues would say, speaking truth to power. So I would, you know, my advice in this space is, of course, um, being brave. You've got to balance between being brave and being silly. Uh, There are things that our mandate requires of us to restrain on, but I think we really need to stress test that every time we get come up against blockages. It reminds me this morning I was talking to our FADS colleagues and one of the fabulous roles of our FADS colleagues in the field is that when states say, oh, you can't go there because of security, you know, we can't let you in that space, to be able to challenge it with intelligence, with facts, with analysis, and not just take the first easy way out of, okay, we won't go there. And I think there's a very similar 
paradigm in, you know, a fear at times that we say something political and states might kick us out um, and how we can just stress test that, you know, really, uh, how often in the past has this happened? What are we really looking at? And it's about finding that unease that we have to live with. Thank you so much. And, you know, we've been looking for a new slogan for the blog and maybe respectfully irritating would be an excellent one to adopt. (laughs) Um, So now we've had uh, a bit of time on the reflection and looking back. Let's shift gears and look forward. I think that I hope that you'll have a big disconnect and a long, (laughs) well-deserved vacation at the end of your mandate. Uh, But once the dust has settled a little bit, or even right now while you're still in this period of reflection, can you tell us, in your opinion, what you see on the horizon? What are some of the key issues and challenges for humanitarian law and policy that lie ahead for us? Yes, thank you. We could do a whole podcast on this, so Mm. I'll try and be as succinct as I can, because this is way too much fun. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking forward, looking backwards, uh, looking right now... um, I look, as I mentioned before, I think this issue about how we maintain a space in a highly polarised, juxtaposed world for impartial, neutral, humanitarian work, action and, I would say, reflection. Uh, the fact that something like IGL does apply to all parties. At the moment, you do smell, and it's not just the Ukraine conf- uh, conflict or international armed conflict. I think we saw it over a period of time. We saw it with the same tar- paradigm when we spent more time looking at the conflicts that related to um, you know, a global war on terrorism, so to speak, or countering terrorism. This sense that we're you know, almost a just war theory. If they're doing the right... If one group's either being a victim or doing the right thing, there's... They don't have any obligations. And I think we really need to, I would say, sharpen and crispen up our, make tighter our messaging around the neutral, impartial, independent role that we play, but that is reflected in the normative framework of obligations on all sides. I think there's confusion between uh, the use, you know, Jazim Bello and Jaz Ad Bellem. I think there's a whole range of things going forward will need to be addressed. And I look to you in the blog. I'll be listening to that as I'm <laughs> dancing around at my uh, festivals in Australia, music festivals to have the blog perhaps reflect on that. I I know that this issue of neutrality I think we need to spend time on because it is central to our added value and we don't want to slip into this fast-paced amplified discourse that digital and social media allows so that's one you know who we are and where neutrality fits in with our operating modality but also our way we use the law our policy diplomacy work i think a second issue has to be of course new technology digital issues we're doing some amazing work uh, in this department on autonomous weapons outer space law cyber warfare i'm sure you've we've had many sessions on this but more at the sort of i would say at the meta level What is, as a humanitarian organisation, what are we trying to push for our relationship as humans with machines, with the incredible advances we're making, not dismissing the benefits it can bring, but really through the weapons, through the battlefield, but also through humanitarians? What is the relationship humans want with machines? And I think that is something that's really important. Um, No doubt that the way conflict is fought, I mentioned just before, we've moved, I think, at least uh, away from mostly being international armed conflicts now we've got a big major sorry mostly being non-international armed conflicts my apologies NIACs into at the moment we've got a big major conflict we're looking at more of a multipolar world how do we deal with that and sort of shift our engagement at sort of the scale uh, level which hopefully won't occur but we need to be ready for as humanitarians so there's something about uh, 
urban warfare, um, something about protracted conflict. So there's all those thematic elements. Finally, I would think um, as an institution and in this space, the diversity of voices and the real depth that doing an analysis around what is the community's response how can we ensure that the community's voices can be heard more? We're looking at that internally as a culture within ICRC. I'm so proud to see the, the proliferation of different types of voices in our department. But how can we how can we think more carefully about a people-centric approach, say, to IHL? What does that mean? Because there's going to be more pressure. There's sovereign states, there's national societies that all feel that they need to play a stronger role in this. And I think this is an area we'll need to reflect on. Um, and I, I think that'll be very exciting for looking forward how do we do we shift in that space and then of course we've still got the old evergreen so to speak counterterrorism, which re- reverts right back to that start of this neutral impartial space no matter who someone is they still have the right to have the bare minimum of humanity which is what we stand for so that's just sort of some of the issues from where how conflict is fought to issues relating to technology and the the changing nature of warfare so a lot on the plate, I think, but I think we're very good as an institution at playing it at all levels. Thank you very much and consider this uh, passing the baton and you've <laughs> laid such great groundwork for us as well and so much of your work will carry on. Absolutely. Um, and let's go back to Helen a little oh, bit as okay. a person because <laughs> I can't miss the opportunity to just hear a little bit uh, about your own career and over the last 20 years, specifically in the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, as a woman in international law, as a mother in international humanitarian law, can you just tell us a little bit about the milestones in your career? Oh, absolutely. Um, how much time have we got? Oh, not much. <laughs> let's, be, let's be succinct, Helen. Okay, well, I mean, at university, I was always interested in the combination of law as a tool for change, of international politics and psychology. So that was where my, my legal sort of undergrad. I then became fascinated in at, at an, as a young professional. Uh, working. I was working for the unions in Australia. I learned to swear. I learned to really toughen up. So now no military worries me at all. I've been in front of the Australian unions, the workers, Builders Workers Industrial Union, the Warfies. I started as a lawyer working on their rights. And I really saw early on the importance of human agency in listening as much as supporting so I could orientate my legal support. I spent some time in Thailand as a lawyer working in a big law firm but also working with women's rights and that also made me understand that they often, as a young 20-year-old, I went along, I was a feminist, I'd done my research, I knew about all the normative frameworks, all the different conventions, and I realised that the issues were much more complicated and they often had their own answers and they wanted me to help them rather than tell them how they could be helped. So that really was a profound impact on me. Um, I then got interested in ensuring that we could get clarity, better clarity of rape being a war crime and worked with some women's groups and groups also with involving men, uh, sexual violence against men, supporting uh, prosecution at the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And that's where I met international humanitarian law. I first had to sit down and read the Geneva Conventions, the protocols and others, and then went on and did a master's and a PhD in this area. So I sort of was able to evolve there. I started uh, with Australian Red Cross and had a great small team in those days, just 15 or so working on how we could disseminate IHL in very creative ways in Australia. Australia's full. You can do do much more crazy things in Australia than you can in <laughs> other parts of the world because you're far away. Um, and, and from there, got to know the ICRC and then became a delegate, head of mission. Loved my time in the field, loved the reality 
of going into places of detention in Myanmar, of talking to military commanders in down south in the Philippines. And really, that gave me another layer and another depth of understanding the importance of what we do as an institution. Um, I then went to to spend some time at university teaching, uh, teaching international law at a master's level. And it was a time when I had small children and I realised what was really important was you don't have to do everything at once. I was away a lot when the kids at first were very little uh, on mission and I realised I needed a time to do other things. So I think trying, stepping in and out of different careers and different roles has been to me very important and very exciting. Um, And then of course, going back to Australian Red Cross and being a director there for a number of years, taught me some of the issues of dealing with governance, dealing with sort of bigger budgets, or quite big budgets. Australian Red Cross at the time had a $3 billion budget. It was a very, very big um, institution uh, in relation to supporting asylum seekers. So I learned a lot of different skills laid on top of my technical skills about how to, to manage a larger department, how to interface with governance. And then, of course, eight years here in this magnificent role. So um, what I have learned is that you can't do everything all at once. You have to make strategic choices. A life is long. There is no longer, I think, the same idea of a career path being so linear. Um, someone once explained it to me. It's a little bit more like playing Marco Polo where you hear different sounds and you move towards it. Uh, so, yes, that's a bit about Helen as a, as, as a, as a mother. I've been um, very lucky also to have, if I may indulge for a moment, a, a partner who has been very flexible, very supportive uh, and has had, as a musician, a bit more of a flexibility of jobs. So I, I realise the, the luckiness. I look at my husband, I think, of my generation, because I'm, I'm getting old now, um, you know, I don't think I would have been able to do what I did if I didn't have that flexibility uh, with someone who's able to look after the children. We took it in turns for many years, five years at a time, who more stayed home and who was able to work. So yes, it's been an extraordinary journey. And I feel for myself, at least, I'm constantly learning and then applying that learning to my current situation. And I hope to continue to learn no matter what I'm doing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that was equal parts relatable and inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's uh, all been been fun anyway. (laughs) And I know that you do always have a special place in your heart as well for for young professionals. Uh, I do remember during the the lockdown, you took special care to make sure that the associates, because that's part of the work that they're doing here is uh, learning about the organization and networking. You really took uh, made efforts to ensure that they were finding ways to meet people despite the the conditions of being in lockdown. So with your career in mind, do you have any specific advice for young humanitarian professionals? Oh, yes, that's a big one. And and yes, I think I also, maybe it's because I feel young at heart. I remember what it was like to be in, in those days called an intern many years ago in a big law firm and feeling a bit lost and wanting to contribute, not knowing how to. So I constantly, even if I'm in directorate sessions for 10 hours, I think, think of every layer, think of everyone who needs some to being seen and being able to have a space to to contribute. So what would my advice be? Well, I recently spoke to our fabulous current associates. We had a pizza lunch together and I, I suggested that in my experience you need the three P's to be really passionate because in this space um, you, you have to have this driving desire, as I mentioned before, to make some sort of change or you don't get going. You need to be patient um, and I often talk about these two things fighting with each other, your passion and your patience are not always the best uh, best of friends and you need to be persistent and have a long vision about making an impact. So having that sort of mind frame, I think it's really important. I think I, I mentioned this before about perhaps looking at careers have not been so linear 
because there's opportunities, you can step in, you can step out. I myself have really enjoyed being able to move at times into academia and then back into a practical situation. Um, I think perhaps as a leader looking forward, it's really important to test things. And it's really, really important, I believe, at least in my experience, it's been wonderful in this role, to have authentic leadership. It's too exhausting to be something you're not. And that sometimes means being a bit vulnerable. Uh, I think being able to show that you don't have all the answers and being comfortable with that, uh, being curious and wanting to learn is really important. And finally, and I feel that for whether we're young or old, I think one of the big challenges to witness or bear witness to the work and the darkness that we see and to not let that to consume our lightness and our happiness. Um, I used to, when I first started, sort of wanted to jump into offices and say, permission to fail, you know, because I think there's some things we can't fail on. I mean, I look at the magnificent work we're doing on things like the commentaries, 50 years that since we've done it last, states look to us. We have to make sure every footnote on that is correct. Mm-hmm. But in other areas, we can also test things. Um, but I feel it's almost to young humanitarians, they need to have in the right context permission to fail, but permission to also enjoy their life and find the lightness in their life. Um, because it is it is tough when you spend all day working on the issues we are. It's it's easy to go home, feel exhausted, feel almost guilty of enjoying a beautiful sunset, knowing you're safe and you've just had a dinner and that you've you've got opportunities. But I think we need to find that balance and and that statement of you know everything in moderation, including moderation. I I think that is critical because it's it's easy to get um, total. We need to give so much of ourselves to our work Mm -hmm. in this role. I feel like I've, in the last eight years, given my my heart, my soul, my intellect, my time. Um, But we also need to, to be people at the end of the day, just as much as what we started in our discussion. At the end of the day, we're people and we're serving people. And so we have to hold on to our own humanity and look after ourselves. So I say for all the young humanitarians, go in with passions, with patience, with pa- with passion, with patience, with persistence. Perhaps not in that um, yeah, clumsily said like that, <laughs> but do that. Uh, but also, be it's okay to look after yourself. Thank you for that. And I, th- I see a glimmer of hope, actually, a very bright ray of hope in a lot of the associates that we have. I think that they. I think that they are actually smarter than my generation. Oh, certainly against mine. I wouldn't become an associate. I would not get into an associate in my department. (laughs) Absolutely not. No, I mean intellectually, but also just the emotional intelligence. I think that they're just much further along than when I was when I was uh, associate age as well. So there is hope there. Absolutely. And as formidable. I mean, I think we also need to be formidable humanitarians. Mm. It is such a privilege to work for the ICRC. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes not all our needs will be met uh, in in doing our job. So we once again need to find that, as Oscar Wiles would say, that moderation between what our needs are as as people to hold on to our lightness, our Mm. humanity, but also it's it's a a heavy privilege to work for this institution. So it's how we find that. uh, But I agree. I think the young young generations, not just the associates, but I look across the young colleagues in diplomacy, in policy, our young researchers, our young lawyers, um, they really give me incredible hope for the future. Same here. And I'm just going to leave you with one last question uh, because I don't want to take too much of your time in this last uh, stretch of your mandate. But it's a question that I love to ask to everyone and so I've decided to incorporate it into the podcast. What are you reading right now? And it doesn't have to be How Does Law Protect in War? Ah. There's no judgment here. <laughs> well, I do. I'm actually reading a lot of work stuff, uh, trying to get things done. Um, 
I'm really interested in when I step out of this role in a few weeks, going back to one of my great loves, which is poetry. I really, I deeply love poetry. I love the way words are like, um, are like colours in poetry. You can play with them. And I, I used to write a lot of poetry before I spent more time writing uh, Libellés and others. So mm. actually at the moment, um, I'm reading some of Emily Dickinson's poetry to just get myself lightly in the mood. Uh, mm-hmm. of moving back into that space because you have to consume poetry in a different way. But I'm also reading some uh, Australian magazines. It's called The uh, Good Weekend. It's nice and light. My mother, is, bless, her, bless, her, bless her heart, um, my mother sends them from Australia to me in hard copy oh, and they basically sweet. come on the Sunday newspaper but they just sort of have articles that have a range of sort of comments on recent restaurants and recent fashion uh, in Melbourne where I'll be going back home so I can once again get myself a dis- So it's in between poetry and sort of the local cool groovy restaurant in downtown Melbourne in a magazine. So yes, I, l- I look forward to reading. I love novels. Mm. I love all novels, all types. I mean, I, I think I love the heavier ones, but I also love the light. Love a, love a good detective. Um, got a, I think I've got a detective novel in me that I'd love to get out and write mm. myself. Um, so yes, at the moment, bit of poetry. Excellent. How lovely. I'm, I'm picturing you already on an Australian beach reading <laughs> Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And it makes me smile. Well, Helen, I don't know how you did it, but you've packed in so much punch to this half hour. We've talked about bringing IHL home. We've talked about shifting the narrative on nuclear weapons. We've talked about how to be proactively optimistic and respectfully irritating. We've looked at the past. We've looked at the future. And you've passed on 20 years of wisdom, all, <laughs> all in one tight half hour. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to reflect with us today. And also just thank you for your energy and, and experience and hard work over these last eight years. Uh, you've really left a very positive impact and a very strong legacy. And I feel honored to be able to say that on behalf of a lot of our department. Oh, well, look, can I, th- can I throw this back at you? Because I've seen the incredible work you've done and I know you're often, you're the one behind the camera asking, or not the camera, behind the microphone asking mm-hmm. the questions, reading out in your beautiful voice the uh, the many of the wonderful blogs we have. But I've seen the tenacity and the, the real, uh, I would say, bringing to life this issue. So I want to throw it back to you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's very rare that I get to sort of gabble on about myself in this way Um, so thank you for that and it also allowed me just before this to have a few moments to sit and think so thanks for your work and it's been really fun if you enjoyed this episode of humanity in war be sure to check out the icrc's humanitarian law and policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash law and policy a library of posts all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.